Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the Healthcare Systems, Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Dr Janet Greenlees of Glasgow Caledonian University. Her paper was entitled The Church of Scotland and the Mixed Economy of Health and Welfare Provision in Glasgow, circa 1900-1950. Eighteen months ago, I received a small grant from the Wellcome Trust to have a look at the Church of Scotland as a provider of health and social care. Um, And I must admit, when I got it, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to get into, um, having mostly worked on either um, English or American history. And 18 months into it, it's turning out to be a fascinating story of localism, but a lot of it seems to center around Edinburgh and Glasgow, and particularly Glasgow, and indeed Glasgow's um, going to be the focus for today. Um, And my story starts about 1900, because although during the 18th and 19th century, Scottish society had relied on religious groups to provide a lot of health and welfare services, um, particularly to fill gaps in poor law provision, it wasn't until the early 20th century that any discussions were held about trying to coordinate or formalize um, this Christian provision. And even then, it was only one branch of the Presbyterians, the established Church of Scotland, that decided to try and broaden and formalize its health and welfare provision um, with specific goals. Now, despite some opposition from those within the church who feared both duplication and abuse of existing services, in 1904, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland agreed that the church must not shrink from taking a full share of responsibility for social and rescue work, and that as the national church, she ought to lead the way in demonstrating the gospel of Christ um, that can meet the direst needs of the human souls and solve the darkest social problems of our time. Very ambitious. Um, To that end, they formed the Committee on Social Work, which was to determine the services required and coordinate provision. Now, while the early project centered on social services, the church gradually expanded into providing selected health care. So that by World War II, the church was the largest single provider of social services in Scotland. Now, throughout this period, the church worked independently of other providers, yet they did engage with civic, charity, and philanthropic groups to try and avoid duplication of service. So today, what I plan to do is examine how the church's initiatives in health and welfare services in Glasgow were designed to meet the needs of specific clientele within the city. Now the church, and this is both the, the Presbyterian Church, both the Church of Scotland and the United Presbyterian Church, there's many different branches of Presbyterianism um, in Scotland, but the two biggest ones were the, church of, the National Church of Scotland and the United Presbyterian Church. And in many respects, they were a unifying force within Glasgow society. Most people in the city respected their local ministers, and although these were often formidable men, um, they did, who bore witness to the duties of men and women to one another and to God. They still had great respect for them. The ministers also promoted self-help, work and thrift, and believed in helping families to improve their condition. Hence, the local ministers were well-situated to address local social needs, and they had a broad membership from which to recruit volunteers, membership of all classes. Now, the church saw the greatest need for services in Scotland City, perhaps unsurprising. Um, and particularly Glasgow, both for health and welfare services and for moral reform. And these were integrally entwined. Therefore, and perhaps unsurprisingly, many of the church's services were designed for women. 
what I hope to argue is that while economic, social, and cultural circumstances influence the direction and type of provision, the services provided became more of the state religion's official channel for approaching Scottish moral anxieties over the erosion of community and family values. However, before turning to what the church, the church's services, I want to briefly consider a bit of the background and the nature of Scottish urban living and the existing matrix of health and welfare provision in Glasgow about 1900, um, when the church started um, entering social work on a broader scale. The timing is perhaps, again, not too unsurprising. It, fit, it coincides with broader British anxieties about the health of the nation, for example, the social inquiries of Charles Booth and Roundtree um, that highlighted the extent and nature of urban poverty in England. Scottish cities certainly held from similar problems. In 1901, half the Scots population lived in one or two rooms. In 1911, nothing happened. No, in 1911, 20% of Scots um, resided in one room, single ends, in a multi-story tenement. And there is a picture of one. There we go. Um, in one room, single ends, in a multi-story tenement with five or more people. Indeed, Glasgow's housing and poverty conundrum of the early 20th century is well known. The Scottish poor law helped only the poorest and mo most helpless members of society, and it operated well into the interwar years and was known for its conservative attitude towards relief and particularly family obligations to kin. Hence, there remained plenty of scope for charities to fill the gaps in health and welfare provision. Now, this increase in charitable provision in Scotland also relates to growing fears about population degeneration, which parallels moral degeneration, similar to what those debates in England. At the turn of the 20th century, in Scotland, the illegitimate birth rate was on average higher than in England and most of Europe. Moreover, in Glasgow, death rates for illegitimate babies remained similar to that of 1873 at 286 deaths per thousand births, nearly double that for legitimate births. At the same time, Scottish birth rate was falling steadily. And these facts greatly concerned the Scottish government, medical officers of health, social reformers, and the church. They also inspired new providers to enter the mixed economy of health and welfare in Scotland in the decades immediately after 1900. Scotland was much more dependent on a mixed economy of welfare and voluntary bodies, especially charities, than England. Indeed, charity was much more of a Scottish tradition than an English one. Charities were relied upon to fulfill poor law deficiencies. Local parishes remained responsible for their members long after they left the parish and when they did not have the finances to do so, thus requiring pe people in need to turn elsewhere for help. Now, the charities that emerged in the early years of the 20th century enjoyed considerable autonomy. Yet trying to recreate this world of charity of early 20th century Scotland is difficult. Firstly, we know little about the extent and nature of neighborly charity in Scotland, although considering the cultural importance of kinship in times of need, the charity of the poor for the poor should probably not be underestimated. Secondly, many of the charitable societies that were well known at the time are now little remembered, with few, if any, surviving records. Indeed, not all the Church of Scotland's initiatives are well documented. But enough records survive to show insight into their priority of evangelical respectability as eligibility for health and welfare services. Thus, when the Church decided to formalize its charitable provision in 1904, they were entering a health and welfare matrix in which the state, family, and voluntary bodies were established and important players. 
Now, naturally, the relationship between these providers changed over time, depending on historical circumstances, but they influenced the church's direction and choices. Their choices for service provision were also influenced by their earlier medical evangelicalism that had formed part of the church's foreign and home mission for decades. <clears throat> so when they decided to start, before jumping straight in, the church conducted an extensive survey of charitable provision throughout Britain and some overseas. And just to give you some idea of the bodies that they looked at, this included the church army, salvation army, um, and local initiatives in Scotland, everything from Scottish Labour co Colony in Dumfries, Glasgow Missions for Friendless, Edinburgh Help Association, and they even looked to New York to see what they were doing there with the Water Street Mission. So clearly, they're taking a broad perspective um, to get ideas. Interestingly, though, of their whole list of services, none were run by other Presbyterian groups. And if you look at the reports of the other um, Presbyterian groups, none of them mention organized welfare provision, including the United Free Church, which, like the established church, possessed a social reforming sense of mission in early 20th century and indeed um, comprised a, a large proportion of um, Presbyterian churchgoers. So the Church of Scotland was unique in that sense. <coughs> now, initially, after doing this huge survey, the church decided that it could best direct its efforts to inebriate homes, labor homes for men, lodging homes for men and women, and rescue homes for women. And the nature of this provision was to be locally determined, for simply because the methods and institutions which succeed in one place where they are necessary will not succeed in another where they are less required. Um, the new initiatives should be organized with the fullest practical cooperation with and endeavor to utilize agencies and institutions aiming at similar work, whether religious or not, in order to prevent unnecessary overlap and interference. Now, this is an interesting aim at the beginning because by the end of my period, um, they're clearly doing their own thing, so to speak. Lastly, the committee recognized that whatever work they embarked upon, they, should, they would find it difficult to tackle the problem of poverty, which had become specially complicated under the conditions of modern life. Yet, because the economic and moral causes of degrading poverty were a hindrance to the diffusion of true religion, the church needed recognized the need to address the issue. And I came to the conclusion that this could best be achieved through chairs of sociology at universities, under which theology students should study. Hence, the church not only recognized the centrality of poverty to many of Scotland's health and social problems, but they also realized that they did not know how to meet the needs of the social environment in which they operated. Consequently, they chose to, to pursue their version of the social gospel. So what did they do? The Committee of Social Work's early projects targeted men because that was where they saw the need to be most urgent. They opened or took over local church projects of labor homes and boarding homes for boys and men in East Lothian, Edinburgh, Peebles, Aberdeen, and Glasgow. Yet they quickly realized that the needs of Glasgow were so great that they secured another home with plans for a third. And all these homes sought social reform through the provision of accommodation in a moral atmosphere and to provide work for the respectable poor. Now, by work, I mean just jobs such as chopping firewood, perhaps gardening um, and doing maintenance around the home, not providing um, work or, any, or trying to get them a job anywhere else. 
Once established, the boarding and labor homes worked to consolidate the provision, and indeed, most homes remained opened through the interwar period. And they complemented the existing lodging and boarding houses in the cities, and they could be classed as a success in terms of being regularly full due to the shortage of decent accommodation in urban areas. However, after the initial expansion, the church did not extend or diversify its services for men. Instead, they remained content that providing short-term accommodation and short-term labor would help make men self-sufficient and rebuild communities and families or make them fit for emigration to Canada. Now, the next initiative, inebriate homes, they never actually took hold, other than Gill Cottage near Edinburgh, which opened in 1904 with space for six women. Temperance did remain a core feature of church projects, but inebriate homes were considered too costly, and as there were already government-run and private institutions that employed physicians who were leading church members, the church did not consider them essential. Rather, they could just simply minister to the residents in the existing homes. That brought them to services for women. And services for women proved to be more complicated. They evolved over time and became the primary focus for the church's health and welfare projects um, through the 1940s. However, the church at the start was unsure how best to address the, quote, peculiar and complex female problem. They held discussions with the YWCA, the Sisters of Charity of St. Paul de Vincent, the Salvation Army, and others, which had highlighted the difficulties in dealing with fallen women and those not yet confined in immorality and those on the slippery slope. In 1906, the Committee on Social Work agreed that they needed a four-pronged strategy to deal with women, including hostels, boarding houses, and preventive and rescue homes in Scottish cities of Glasgow, Dundee, and Paisley, although they quickly... um, realized that they would need to concentrate most of their services in Glasgow. Hustles and boarding houses simply provided Christian accommodation. The preventive homes, I managed to find a picture of one of them, um, provided accommodation, a kindly supervision, affection and wise guidance, and a spiritual atmosphere for adolescent girls from respectable homes who were believed at particular risks from the perils of city life. Now, while these homes preferred to take in girls who were themselves or their families church members, if there was space, the homes would accept any young girl living in unhealthy lodgings and motherless girls. The only groups that they excluded specifically were weak-minded girls or prostitutes. Then they had the rescue homes, which sought to save girls either homeless or estranged from their families and just entering the downward path. Rules were strict and designed to restore women to self-respect and social efficiency. And there we go, there's a picture of another, of a rescue home. It's on the market, by the way, if anybody's looking for one, uh, um, for a nice um, house. Uh, Residents were expected to stay in these rescue homes for 18 months or more to escape old associations, bury the past, and learn work from which they could make an honest living, including laundry work, mattress making, and various sewing projects, particularly stockings they seemed interested in. Thus, these early homes sought to provide the same moral and physical supervision that the church believed was found in a good Christian home. Certainly, middle-class social reformers considered the homes successful and that they provided national service. Now, these homes contrasted with the private and some local authority boarding houses, which prioritized the ability to pay, were often overcrowded and in poor repair. 
In these homes, single women of all ages, women with children, widows, abandoned wives, unwed mothers, and sometimes prostitutes, all lodged together. Elsewhere, men and women shared accommodation. And the church believed such homes contributed to the wreckage of young womanhood. Now, while unlikely that these beliefs directly contributed to the success of the church's homes, the Committee on Social Work believed that parents appreciated the quality accommodation and supervision for their daughters. Now, while the resident's voice is missing, they could leave at will. The fact that many women stayed may have been simply due to the comfortable, affordable, available accommodation and that they enjoyed the family atmosphere and Christian surroundings. For those women whose behavior bordered on the margins of social acceptability, the rescue homes might have been preferable to dealing with the police. Indeed, any combination of these reasons could be true. And this, combined with the shortage of accommodation in Scottish cities, makes it unsurprising that by World War I, most of the church's hostels, boarding houses, preventive and rescue homes were full, with any vacancies quickly filled. The poor law commissioners, the public authorities, um, and the community all recognized the Church of Scotland's quality accommodation and their efficient organization. <coughs> it's commended in medical officer of health reports, the poor law um, reports, local government reports. And this um, recognition only served to convince the General Assembly that the Church was on the right path to counteract the many perils which beset the young in our city. And this is 1914. The onset of war and growing concerns about the health of Britain and about young people's lack of moral restraint only confirmed the next direction, to provide health and social services for unwed mothers for whom there was a very pressing need. Now, before looking at this new um, area of provision, just a little bit of background about illegitimacy um, and early 20th century healthcare market for unwed mothers in Glasgow. In the decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century, community attitudes towards both the unwed mother and child different in, differed in Scotland from that south of the border. Local culture was pivotal to the acceptance of an illegitimate child by their immediate and extended family and their community, including the local church, and it varied widely throughout Scotland. There were re also regional variations in illegitimacy rates, marriage norms, and the associated shame um, and these remained well into the 20th century and much longer than in England. Even in the 1970s, hastily arranged marriages were common in parts of Scotland. When women or their families were shamed by an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, they tended to use mother and baby homes. Now, while policies varied widely, most British homes sought to adopt the babies out. The Church of Scotland did not. Instead, they encouraged mothers to keep their babies. They arranged short-term fostering or extensive aftercare, including accommodation for mothers and their babies to live together, and childcare so that the mother could work. <coughs> now, the church's social policy concerning unwed mothers differentiated it from other providers. And certainly by World War I, Glasgow had an established and varied healthcare market for unmarried mothers. Um, and that just gives you um, an idea of what there was. The private lying-in homes, the ones at the very, at the very bottom, as, and as you can see, it's a burgeoning business. 1911, there were 12 in Glasgow. Two years later, you're up to 30 in Glasgow. Now, these were operated by charities or, or a few philanthropic individuals, and they emphasized adoption. However, other than their existence, little is known about the private homes, um, such as who operated them, where they were located, 
whether they served specific client groups or even if they provided medical attendance at birth. But all these different um, homes filled an important gap in Glasgow's medical market because the government had no consistent strategy or indeed provision for unmarried mother. And um, the Glasgow Corporation and indeed um, the broader Scottish government avoided, avoided responsibility. The Church of Scotland's home for unwed mothers opened on Herbert Street in West Glasgow in 1915 with six beds. Similar to their other homes, only respectable girls who were pregnant for the first time and who were either themselves or their families members of the Church of Scotland were admitted. And in the first two years of operation, 29 girls entered the home, all of whom were employed, and that's the job they did. Um, domestic servants, perhaps unsurprisingly, comprised the most, but you did have others such as shop workers, munition workers, and my favorite, a car driver. But clearly these are neither the unworthy poor nor prostitutes that received most public scrutiny at the time. The church sought to avoid stigmatizing the women who used their home, and they treated them as individuals rather than faceless collective, sorry, rather than as a faceless collective group or as victims. And they actively sought to keep the mother and child because the church believed that the keeping of mother and child together needs to be a cardinal point of social policy because the child thrives better and the presence of the child is an important factor in safeguarding, steadying, and strengthening the mother. Adoption and nursing out were only to be used as a last resort. At the same time, the church recognized the economic and social costs of pregnancy outside of wedlock, and they sought to, to help reunite the mother with her family or help the mother find work to support herself and her baby. The welfare of the mother and child remained a core element of social policy um, throughout the years, although their clientele gradually changed. Now, the care offered by Herbert Street Maternity Home was at least as good and probably better than the unwed mothers would have received in the other un um, private nursing homes for illegitimate confinements in Glasgow. The matron who supervised the girls' care from when she entered the home until she and her baby left was an experienced and qualified maternity nurse, probably under the 1915 Midwives Scotland Act. She provided patients with instruction on how to care for their baby, as well as anti- and postnatal care, with time to spend with their baby and strengthen the mother-baby bond. Observers commended the home. In 1917, the local government boards, under the auspices of the Carnegie Trust, published a survey of maternal and child health throughout Britain and their report singled out the Church of Scotland's Glasgow home for favorable comment. Both its policy of keeping mother and baby together and the matron's skill and empathy with the girls were commended. Thus, maternity care reflected the Church's social theory and moral reform agenda, core to which were the preservation of the biological family and the family of Christ. Now, the other Glasgow homes for unwed mothers also emphasized the middle-class values of respectability, but they had different methods. The home for deserted mothers which is the one in the bottom left, um, sought to return the unwed mother to social re respectability through vocation. Penitence could not be achieved while a woman cared for an illegitimate child. Therefore, as soon as possible after birth, the newborn was placed under the care of proper and trustworthy nurses, while the mother was expected to defray the costs of rearing and upbringing her child, even through fostering until formal or informal adoptions had been arranged. Other homes for unwed mothers, including the Magdalens, had comparable policies. Both mother and baby would be better off if separated. 
Hence, while the various Glasgow homes for unwed mothers served select and different client groups, they all involved small groups of social experts with narrow views of both the problem and the solution. They all believed they were doing best for mother and infant. It was the means to this end that differed. So, moving on to after the Great War. During the interwar years, the Church of Scotland expanded its services for women, hostels, preventive res and rescue homes. And this was despite the fact that their moral authority and social influence um, had been weakened by the collective indifference of the Presbyterian or by the perceived collective indifference of the Presbyterian Church to the war. The Church of Scotland expanded the residential projects to fill needs and in an effort to remake post-war Scotland into a Christian country. However, their uptake declined. Now, the Church believed the dwindling popularity of its home was due to the ease of gaining employment. Yet the interwar depression and industrial decay was changing the Protestant community. Social divisions became more marked as middle-class congregations separated from working-class ones. More generally, church attendance declined as people lacked suitable clothes for church and money for collections. The increasing us-and-them attitude of the church towards poverty and unemployment only aggravated proletarian disaffection with the church and its calls for social reconstruction. Social disillusionment with the church's hands-on moral authority meant the rescue work needed new clients. The rescue and preventive homes were not filled until networks with the police increased after 1921. The church now provided accommodation and social services for girls who were in dangerous circumstances on probation or first-time offenders in hopes they could prevent the girls from becoming hardened criminals or unwed mothers. Not only did church provision ease pressures on tight municipal budgets, their social services helped secure a central play position within Scottish society and politics. The maternity home also expanded, but increasingly targeted better-off families. In 1924, they moved to Lansdowne Crescent. Um, to, it's one of the white buildings on the left side, um, 39 Lansdowne Crescent. They now had 40 beds. And the home was quietly meeting the needs of respectable Church of Scotland women who'd been led astray. The women now came for about three months preceding the birth, when pregnancy was most obvious, enabling the women or their families to hide any shame. After giving birth, the women remained at the home for at least two months. And throughout their time at the home, the women's health was monitored. They received instruction in mothercraft, and they could make arrangements for future. And this marked the church as a rare provider of anti- and postnatal care in Glasgow. Antenatal and postnatal care in interwar Glasgow was becoming more common, but only in places, particularly Edinburgh, largely due to the efforts of Drs. John Ballantyne and James Ferguson and their teacher, Alexander Russell Simpson. Um, <coughs> Glasgow was not so fortunate. The Medical Officer of Health, Dr. A.K. Chalmers, advocated antenatal care as essential for lowering maternal and infant mortality rates. He opened antenatal care clinics for both married and unmarried mothers, but they were poorly attended and many closed. During the interwar period, growing numbers of medical professionals criticized existing antenatal provision and recommended increasing hospital accommodation for maternity cases, especially antenatal assessment. 1937, the PEP report on British Health Services noted how only 35% of expectant mothers in Scotland attended antenatal clinics, compared with 73% in London and 63% of women in county boroughs. And these critiques only secured increased regulation for maternity homes. Glasgow's MOH, um, at the time, Dr. A.S. McGregor, noted the varying quality of facilities and record-keeping at private lying-in homes and the associated high rates of purple fever. In contrast, 
After the 1927 Midwives and Maternity Homes Scotland Act mandated the registration and inspection of maternity homes, the Church of Scotland's home passed that and all future recommendations. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> the superintendent nurse of Lansdowne House um, had extensive nurse training in Britain and overseas, and there was a local doctor on call too. However, health care and social services are separate areas of provision. The former received state provision. The latter was under strain from social pressures. Now, the Committee on Social Work was main committed to its policies, but their efforts to keep mother and baby together faltered in the 1930s when the church increasingly found itself having to foster out babies or arrange adoption. By 1939, nearly half the babies born at Lansdowne House were adopted, which corresponds with studies of English and Welsh homes, um, where adoptions of illegitimate babies increased significantly about World War II. But adoption still never featured as part of the home's policy. Um, now, the reasons for this, obviously, are unknown. Might be women's individual circumstances or family pressures. Certainly, by the mid-30s, um, the reports of the home note that it had become a source of real comfort to parents into whose homes tragedy had come. World War II brought yet another resurgence of moral concern for women and children. 1941, the church starts a moral welfare scheme. Um, <clears throat> uh, and now they've got three aims. Prevention, which is now day clubs, not homes, to meet treatment and aftercare. Treatment and aftercare included homes and hostels, which included the preventive and rescue work, and the maternity home. By 1942, Lansdowne House was refusing applications for admission due to lack of accommodation. Um, while the direct influence of, of the social and welfare workers is unclear, the number of girls keeping their babies increased. By 1944, there were no adoptions, and rates remained low through 1948, which is in complete contrast to what's happening in England and Wales, where adoption rates for illegitimate babies rose during and immediately after the war. Indeed, there's a growing presumption in England and Wales that illegitimate babies would be placed up for adoption. However, this um, meant that um, Lansdowne House could no longer meet the needs of so many clients, so they moved to Polk Shields, um, St. Andrew's Drive. Uh, this is actually next door to where theirs was, but it's a similar nice sandstone um, mansion. Quite nice, really. Um, and they named it Lansdowne House. Now, this has facilities um, for um, birthing facilities and partly to accommodate uh, the wartime shortage of maternity beds and women could have their babies there um, into the 1950s before reverting to using um, a hospital. However, by the wartime, the Church of Scotland services are getting, being challenged by the state, um, thanks to uh, the Beverage Report of 1942, which recommended the state provide health and welfare services um, for all, including unwed mothers. Now, the church tries to reassert its unique position in the market um, as not being not merely financial but touching the deeper needs of the soul. Um, and certainly to them, the war highlighted the importance of keeping religion central to its projects. Uh, but while the law prevented discrimination in health care, it didn't remove social prejudices surrounding illegitimacy. It didn't address the economic realities faced by a lone mother. And hence, Lansdowne House found its services complementing other provision. However, the introduction of the NHS and, social and gradual increased social disaffection with the church led to declining war, uh, declining demand after the war. So just briefly, a couple of conclusions. Um, certainly the Church of Scotland's home were part of an extensive range of charity, health and welfare provision in Glasgow. Yet by World War II, the original aim of providing local services to meet local needs 
had shifted to addressing moral anxieties and a limited market. By emphasizing the medical and moral boundaries of motherhood, the church also constructed them. The church had no policy on morality and health and welfare. Yet at the same time, the church constructed medical boundaries that neglected the majority of its members, the poor. The church's reluctance to keep pace with the changing social environment within which they operated limited their input or impact um, on Glasgow's health and welfare needs, while having a lasting influence on the moral boundaries of maternity in Scotland. Thank you. Thank you very much.